All right, well, we're going to get into the Word this morning. We are in a series called The Roman Road. And as we learned last week, the Roman Road was a, a, a technological marvel that was way ahead of its time. And it's what allowed the Roman Empire to basically rule and reign over the entire known world. Because the roads allowed them to move their military, the roads allowed them to thrive economically, the roads allowed them to spread the edicts of the Caesar, it allowed them to spread information, but the great thing about the Roman road is it also facilitated the spread of the gospel. And so now today what we're calling the Roman road is our journey through the book of Romans and an understanding of that gospel message that went forth so many years ago. And so we're going to spend our summer kind of just going through section by section in the book of Romans. And so last week, our first stop on the Romans road was Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Our goal in this series is that, number one, we would understand the gospel. But number two, we would uh, allow the gospel to come in and to begin to shape our hearts and our lives, and it would be transformative in our lives, but also that we would be uh, so moved by the gospel that we would become bold and unashamed, and that we would begin to share the gospel like never before, because it's impacted us, because we understand it, because we're confident in it. So today, we're going to move forward to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 21, and one of the commentaries that I read this week actually made the bold assertion that this passage that we're studying today is the most important passage in the entire New Testament when it comes to understanding the gospel. So that's a a lofty uh, proclamation, and it puts a lot of pressure on me to make sure I teach it right. Hallelujah. All right, let's start in verse 21. It says, But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Now, just that one verse right there is a mouthful, yeah? It says that the righteousness of God has been manifested. What does that mean? Well, manifested means that something becomes evident. It becomes clearly visible. It becomes obvious. Maybe it was hidden before, and now it's out in the open. And so it's saying that the righteousness of God is being manifested. What's the righteousness of God? Well, that's being made right with God, right? That's being accepted in the eyes of God. That is being, uh, that, that our lives are considered up to God's standard, the righteousness of God. And so it's saying that the righteousness of God is being revealed. It's being manifested apart from the works of the law. That means separate from the old system, separate from any rules, separate from anything that we do, it's being manifested. And I love because this verse starts with, but now, right? Anytime somebody says, but now, that means that there was an old way, but now something new is happening, right? And I believe that that's what God, God wants some but now moments today, all right? That there was an old thing happening in your life, but now something new is happening. And what Paul was sharing here earlier was that the old way was that we were under condemnation because of the law, because we could never measure up to the standard to the law, and we could never fully and completely keep the law. And so therefore we were under condemnation, but now, now there's a new thing. Hallelujah. And that new thing is the righteousness of God being revealed apart from the law 
being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What does that mean? That means that the entire Old Testament was pointing us to this new thing. That the entire Old Testament from Moses through every prophet that wrote was all pointing to this but now moment. So if you've got your notes with you, which hopefully you got your notes on the way in. If you're listening to this podcast, the notes are attached to the audio. But you can see in your notes, we want to go through four points on this but now journey. Four things that God is teaching us about the gospel, that he's teaching us about moving out of the old thing and experiencing the new thing that he's doing now. So let's start in verse 23. The next signpost in our Romans road journey says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So number one in your notes is pretty straightforward. We have all sinned. And sin, let's have a definition of it, right? Because sin is is one of those Bible words that if, if you're not grown up and versed in the church, you may not understand exactly what sin is. Sin is any form of disobedience against God. It's any rejection of God or His ways. Sin is anything where we say, you know what? I don't want to believe in God. I don't want to do it his way. My way is better. I want to make my own rules. I want to live my life on my own terms. I don't care what he says. Anything that is a rejection of God, that is a rejection of God's ways, or anything that is disobedience against God's standard, against his word, is sin. And here's the thing. We have all sinned. This is actually the one thing that unifies all of mankind. In this day and age where we are struggling to to recognize equality and we are grappling with racism, I tell you what, this is one thing that makes us all equal. Doesn't matter what your skin color is, what your ethnicity is, what your background is, we are all unified in the fact that we have all sinned. So listen, as a follower of Christ, if you're looking to share the gospel with somebody and you're looking for some common ground, something that you have in common that you can share with them, here's a great starting point. We've all sinned. I've sinned, you've sinned, we've all sinned. And that could be the starting point of a conversation is, hey, we've all messed up. We've all rejected God. We've all been disobedient to Him. We've all sinned. Now, the extent and the nature of that sin may vary, but we've all done it, right? One person might have committed murder, and another person might have pride in their hearts. We like to separate those and say one is worse than the other. But it's all sin. And then you can see in your notes, it says that sin is a part of our nature passed down to us from Adam. If we jump a couple chapters forward in Romans, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all men have sinned. And so this sin is not just something that we do, it's in our nature. In Genesis 1.27, it says that Adam was made in the very image of God. But then if you skip forward to Genesis 5.3, it says that Adam had a son in his own image. Adam was made in the image of God, but we've all been born in the image of Adam, which means we've all been born with a nature that tends to sin. 
In Psalm 51, 5, King David recognized that he was born a sinner. In fact, he took it a step further. He said from the moment he was conceived in his mother's womb, he was already a sinner. It's in our nature. One of the memes that I've seen floating around right now in this time where we're dealing with racism and oppression and inequality is I've seen this meme that says that you have to be taught how to hate. You have to be taught how to hate. And it's a great meme and it sounds really nice on social media, but I just don't believe it's true. Nobody had to teach Cain how to hate his brother and kill his brother. It just came to him naturally. I've raised three kids. I didn't have to teach any one of them how to be selfish. I didn't have to teach any one of them how to throw a fit. I didn't have to teach any one of them how to disobey me. That all came naturally. What I had to teach them was how to have respect for each other and how to have kindness for each other and how to share and how to function within boundaries and how to follow rules at school. The other part comes naturally. In John 8.34, Jesus says that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So you see, not only have we all sinned, but we all have a sin nature. And because of that sin nature, we're all slaves to sin. In fact, in 1 John 1.10, it says that if we claim to have no sin, then we're calling God a liar and the truth is not in us. So it's kind of like if anybody has done recovery, if anyone's done a 12-step program, you know that the first step is that we have admitted that we have become powerless to our addiction. So the first step here in our but now journey is recognizing that we've all sinned, recognizing that we all have a sin nature that we've been born with, and recognizing that because of that, we're a slave to sin. We've got to start there. If we're not willing to start there, the rest of the gospel doesn't make sense. Let's go to number two. We're staying right here in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Number two is we all fall short of the glory of God. If you notice the tenses of the verbs, right? It says we have all sinned, which is past tense. But then it says we all fall short which is present tense. Falling short of the glory of God isn't something that we do. It's a condition that we're in. We all fall short of the glory of God. You see, one of the things that we like to do as humans to make ourselves feel better is we find people that are really awful and we compare ourselves to people that are really awful and that makes us feel like we're a good person, right? So we can say, you know... At least I'm not beating my kids like that guy down the street. So I'm a good person because I don't beat my kids like he does. Or, you know, hey, at least I'm not like those racists that are killing black people. So I'm a good person because I'm not like them. Or, you know, at least I didn't abandon my family because I was hooked on meth like all those drug addicts do. Right? So we like to compare ourselves to somebody who's worse than us so that we can justify that we're a good person. But I love this quote from Charlie Moulet, who was a great theologian from the University of Cambridge. He said, One person might stand at the crest of the Alps and the other might be at the bottom of a mine, but both fall well short of the stars. 
Think about that. You could be on top of one of the tallest mountains on earth and you can look at somebody who lives at the bottom of a mine and you can say, you know what? I am so much better than that person. I've got it so much together than that person. Compared to them, I am such a good person. But here's the problem. Both you at the top of the mountain and that person at the bottom of the mine, neither of us could reach the stars. You can try in all of your own strength to jump as high as you can. And you cannot reach the stars. So it doesn't matter how good of a person you think you are. We all fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God has been interpreted by biblical scholars as possibly meaning the approval or the praise of God, possibly meaning the presence of God, possibly meaning the standard of God, possibly meaning the perfect life or the best life that God has created us for. I believe that all of these interpretations could be accurate. So what that means is that our sin keeps us out of the presence of God. Our sin keeps us out of relationship with God. Our sin keeps us out of the best life that God created us for. You see, this matters for eternity. Because if our sin is keeping us out of the presence of God, then when we die, we're facing eternal separation from God. The Bible describes that as hell, and there's a lot of descriptions of hell. But ultimately, it comes down to that you're eternally separated from God with no hope of ever getting back to Him. It matters for eternity. But being separated from the presence of God also matters for right now. Because outside of His presence, we cannot live life, the abundant life that He called us to. We cannot live the abundant life that He created for us. We cannot live out everything that He made us for. And so this matters for all eternity. This matters for right now. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And there is nothing that we can do to get there on our own. Imagine being up at Waimea Canyon and standing on one edge of that glorious canyon. Now, you know, you've got the nice lookouts with the railings and everything that make you feel really safe, but... Then you got those trails that take you right up to the edge where there's no railing. And whoo, that's a whole different experience, yeah. My goodness. Standing near the edge and looking down into the, the depths of the canyon and then looking over to the, the cliff wall on the other side. And imagine that you're on one side of the canyon and God is on the other side. And the separation has been caused by our sin nature. There is nothing that you can do to jump from one side to the other. You could try in all of your strength. You could exercise. You could work out. You could expand your jumping capacity. And yet there is nothing that you could do to jump from one side to the other. You say, great, this all sounds like a whole lot of bad news, Pastor. Well, it is, but to fully appreciate how amazing the good news is, is we have to come to terms with the bad news. We have all sinned. We all have a sin nature, and because of that, we're all slaves to sin. And because of that sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. We are outside of His presence, and nothing that we can do can get us back into His presence. So come on, let's get into the good news now. Verse 24. 
being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Let's stop right there because propitiation is a Bible word that we don't really use anymore today. And so unless you've taken a Bible study class or you've grown up in church, you have no idea what propitiation means. Propitiation simply means a substitution. It's substitutionary. And so when it says that God displayed publicly as a propitiation in the blood of Jesus, what he's saying is that Jesus was a substitute sacrifice for us. And that's number three here in our notes, the substitute sacrifice. Propitiation equals substitutionary, which equals that Jesus paid the price that we should have been responsible to pay for ourselves. Jesus in his blood paid the price for us. What do we deserve for our sin? We deserve death. That's what we deserve. We deserve to die separate from God and we deserve to spend an eternity without God. That's what we deserved. But God didn't want us to get what we deserved. And so He came and paid the price that we should have paid ourselves so that Jesus could bridge the gap across Waimea Canyon that we could never jump across ourselves but that we could simply walk across thanks to the work that Jesus did for us. What I love here is it says that God displayed it publicly, right? God initiated this. This wasn't a decision that Jesus made in his human form or that somebody made at the last minute. No, this was God who initiated the process. And Jesus said in John 15, 13, that this was the greatest act of love in human history. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus, as the one person on this planet who didn't deserve to die, was willing to die for us. And verse 24 calls it redemption, right? It says, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means to liberate through a ransom. Redemption means to buy back. And so in the the culture that Paul was writing in, the Greek word that he used here for redemption was understood as after a war, when there were prisoners of war, that you would go and pay a ransom to have those prisoners released back to you. That's the word redemption. It was also used in the slave markets, that if you were willing to go into the slave markets and pay a ransom, to liberate that slave from their life of slavery, that's the word redemption that was used in the Greek culture. So what is Paul talking about here? That when Jesus died for us, this propitiation, this substitutionary death, that what he was doing is he was paying the ransom. His blood was the ransom cost to liberate us from our slavery. Right, If because of our sin nature we are slaves to sin, then Jesus has come to liberate us from that. You see, we don't have a behavior problem. Right, We like to frame it that way because it makes us feel better about it. 
We don't have a behavior problem. What we have is a slavery problem. That our nature has enslaved us to sin. Our nature has enslaved us to reject God. Our nature has enslaved us to continually fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus comes along. And rather than doing some sort of outward behavior modification program, Jesus says, let's work on this thing from the inside out. That's why we sang that song this morning. Let's work on this thing from the inside out. Let's pay the ransom to liberate you from your slavery so that then your behavior can begin to transform. There's an old story. There's some argument about whether it's a true story or whether it's a legend, but I think either way, it's a great story. The story is of a man named John Griffith. In 1929, he had everything that he hoped for, right? He had a great job. He had a beautiful bride. They just had their first baby, a beautiful little baby boy. And everything was going his way until the stock market crashed in 1929. They lost everything, but they still had family. And so John packed up his few possessions, and with his wife and his newborn baby, they headed east. And they made their way to the edge of the mighty Mississippi River. And he found a job tending one of the great railroad bridges there that crossed the river. One of the drawbridges that would go up to allow the boats to move down the river and then would go down to allow the trains to cross over the bridge. And John worked at this job day after day. He would sit in the control room and he would, uh, he would throw the lever and the bridge would go up and then he'd throw the lever and the bridge would come back down and he knew the train schedule by heart and he understood how to communicate with all the different boats as they were coming down the river. Well, eight years later in 1937, John brought his son to work with him one day. And they were having a great day at work and he was showing his son all the ins and outs of everything that he had learned and communicating with the boat captains and understanding the train schedule. And, and so after he had lifted the, the bridge and allowed some boats to go by, he said, hey son, let's, let's take a lunch break. So they went off of the, the, the platform and out of his control booth and they went off to the edge of the bridge where there was a grass clearing and they sat there in the grass and they had lunch together. Just a beautiful father-son moment as they talked about life and, and, and talked about all the things that, that they love to do. And as they're sitting there talking and enjoying their lunch, suddenly they're interrupted by the, the, the piercing of the train whistle. John looks at his watch. It's 107. He'd lost track of time. He'd been enjoying his time with his son so much. He'd lost track of time. And the Memphis Express was due to come across the bridge right now. So he went as quick as he could. He told his son, stay here. I've got to go throw the switch. And he runs back up, runs across the catwalk, gets back into his, his control room. And right when he's ready to throw the switch, he hears a horrible scream. And he looks out the window of his control room and he looks down. And down below him, in the great gearbox of the bridge, he sees his son, who had tried to follow him back to the control room, but had slipped and fallen off the catwalk and had dropped right into the gearbox. 
And there lay his son pinned between two of the massive cogs. And John only had a split second to consider. Would he leave the bridge up so he could go down and save his son? Or would he throw the lever to lower the bridge so that all 400 people aboard the Memphis Express could survive? And in that moment, he made the best choice that he could make. And he closed his eyes as they burned with tears. And he threw the lever. And the bridge came down and the cogs crushed his son. And he stood there in agony as he watched the Memphis Express crossing the bridge. And he looked in the windows of the train cars. And he saw businessmen sitting and talking. He saw ladies sitting at tables sipping their morning tea or their afternoon tea. He saw kids running around and playing. And his agony bubbled over as he cried out, though nobody could hear him. He cried out, I just sacrificed my son. Don't you know what I just did? Don't you care the price that I just paid for you? That is the heart of a father. And that is the heart of what God did for us. And the greatest act of love that we have ever seen. That God would be willing to sacrifice His own Son. Now this story is a great metaphor, but it's imperfect in two ways. The first way it's imperfect is because God didn't have to make a last minute decision to either choose His Son or to choose us. God planned this out long before we ever sinned. He planned to pay the price for us. But I think the second reason why this story falls short as a metaphor is because of the people that were on the train. We can imagine them as nice, happy families and productive business people, but what if, what if the Memphis Express was a prison train? What if every person on that train was a convicted felon? There were murderists and rapists and thieves and extortionists. Because that's who God died for, each one of us in the guilt of our sin. He didn't die for us because we were good people that deserved to live. He died for us though we were prisoners, though we had rejected Him, though we were guilty. God threw the switch anyway. Let's finish up this morning with our last points. Let's look at verses 27 and 28. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He says, for we maintain... For Paul to say that means that he was getting some sort of opposition. People didn't like his stance. People didn't like what he was teaching. People didn't like this message of free grace. And so they were coming at him with the law. They were coming at him with rules and works and things that we need to do. And his response was, no, for we maintain 
That man is justified through faith apart from the works of the law. Martin Luther in the early 1500s, as he led the great reformation of the church, one of his rallying cries was sola fide, which you can see is point number four in your notes. Sola fide in the Greek means faith alone. Faith alone. The rallying cry that through faith alone are we justified. Through faith alone do we receive the gift, the redemption, the ransom that Jesus paid for us. Through faith alone. And we don't like this. Why don't we like this? Because it means that we don't have anything to brag about. Right? Verse 27 says, what can we boast in? We're not saved through a law of works. We're saved through a law of faith. So we have nothing to brag about. You see, we prefer to be able to take some credit. We prefer to be able to say, well, I was a decent person. I did X number of good things or I did this. We want to be able to brag. We want to be able to say that we had some part in it. We want to be able to determine the methodology. Well, yeah, I want to come to God, but I want to come this way because I like coming this way because that means that I got to choose and I got to make it up and I get to take some credit for it. But you see, with sola fide, with faith alone, we take no credits because we did nothing to deserve it and we did nothing to earn it that we receive it through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And it says we are justified. Justification is a courtroom term, meaning to be declared not guilty. A fun way to think of it is justified means that it's just as if I'd never sinned. To be justified means you've been declared not guilty of all of your sins. It means that those sins will never be attached to you again. You will never be responsible that you have done those things. You have been justified. And you have been justified freely through grace of Jesus Christ. How? By faith alone. You see, the way to God is not a way at all. We live in a world that likes to say there's lots of different ways to God. And we can all choose our own way and we're all going to end up in the same place together. But that's just not true because the way to God is not a way at all. The way to God is a person and that person is Jesus Christ. The only way to God is through putting our faith in Jesus Christ. It's through making the decision, I'm going to believe in Jesus. I'm going to believe that He is who He said He was that He was God in the flesh. I'm going to believe that He came to this earth and that He lived a perfect life and that He died on a cross to pay the ransom for me, that He liberated me from the slavery of my sin and I'm going to believe that He rose from the grave victorious over death and that He's still alive today interceding for me in the very presence of God. I'm going to believe in Jesus Christ and it is that faith and that faith alone in Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life that is going to bring you the redemption, the justification, that's going to set you free from the slavery of sin and it's going to allow God to come in and to make you a new person, no longer controlled by the nature of sin, but controlled by a new nature that God is birthing inside of you. 
Because of that, no longer are you going to be separated from God by a canyon. But you're going to be able to walk into the very presence of God. Not only for now, but for all eternity. For now, in the presence of God, we can live the best life that He has created us to live. And for all eternity, we can celebrate in the glory of God, in His presence. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, I'm going to invite the worship team to come as we finish up today. Thank you, Jesus. We have all sinned. We have all been enslaved by a sin nature. And because of that, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. But praise be to God for the substitute sacrifice that Jesus made for us. That His blood is the ransom that sets us free from slavery. And that we can receive that gift by faith alone. We can receive that gift right now simply by choosing to put all of our faith and all of our trust in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus. I still remember the day I made that decision. You see, I wasn't in a position where I thought I was a good person or I thought I was better than anybody. I was a convicted felon, a drug addict. I had lied to and abused and stolen from every person who had ever cared about me. I'd hurt a lot of people. I had done a lot of despicable things. I'd been in and out of jail. I'd been a failure at everything I had put my hand to. And it was in that place where I knew I didn't deserve anything. I didn't deserve anything. And yet God revealed himself to me. And he revealed his goodness and his love in this message of a Savior who had died for me. And he showed me that there was a life that he had called me to live. And I didn't have to live it in my own strength. And I didn't have to be good enough. And I didn't have to measure up. And I didn't have to deserve his love. He was going to give it all to me anyway. And in that moment, it wasn't a hard decision for me to surrender. Though I had lived my life as an atheist, and though I had tried to proclaim my own truth and my own ideas about how I thought the world should work and how I thought things should go down, in that moment, recognizing the power of that love and the lengths that God would go to allow me to live a life that I could never live on my own, it wasn't a hard decision to surrender everything to Him. And my prayer for you today is that it's not a hard decision for you either. I pray right now, across this hillside, that the Spirit and presence of God would begin to move. And as it said in verse 21, that the righteousness of God would be made manifest right now the presence of God would become clear. It would become obvious that the love and the goodness of God would become so clear and so obvious right now. Come on, flood our hearts right now. God, flood our vehicles. Lord, wash down the hillside and flood every home and living room that can hear me talking right now. Flood it right now, Lord. Your grace, your mercy your compassion, your love.
Oh, that we would realize the great act of love that our God did to ransom us back, to bring us back to Him. And I pray right now, Lord, You would bring us to the point of surrender. You would bring us to the point of surrender. Jesus. Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Come on, if you're here right now and you're making a decision that you're going to put your faith alone in Jesus Christ, you're ready to be set free from the sin in your life. You're ready to be made brand new. You're ready to experience the best life that God created you for. Right now, you're ready to put your faith alone in Jesus Christ. If that's you right now, would you just lift your hand up high? Be unashamed. If you're in your vehicle, then stick your hand as far out of your vehicle as you can so I can see your hands. We just want to celebrate together with you right now. We want to pray for you right now in this moment of decision. Thank you, Jesus. I see that hand. Thank you, Jesus. Any others today? Hallelujah. Father, I pray right now for every person that is making a decision. Jesus, declare them not guilty right now. Right now, Lord, lift the shame of sin off of their lives, that they would no longer live under the burden of that shame. They would no longer live under the condemnation. They would no longer live under that condemning voice of the enemy. Maybe it be their own voice. Maybe it be the voice of family that has rejected them. Whatever voice has condemned them, I pray right now in Jesus' name that, God, you would silence the condemning voices. And the only voice they would hear right now is the voice of love. The voice of love that says you're accepted. The voice of love that says you're forgiven. The voice of love that says you are welcome. The voice of love that says come draw near to me right now. The voice of love that says I've got something great for you. I've got something new for you. I pray that that voice of love would speak deeply into their hearts right now. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for that. Hallelujah. If you made a decision to put your faith alone in Jesus today, I want you to find somebody after service. Find me. Find one of our ushers and let them know so that we can walk this journey with you. If you're in your home right now listening to the sound of my voice, man, Go to our website, email us from our website, go to our Facebook, message us on Facebook. Let us know that you've made a decision to trust Jesus so that we can do this journey together with you.